Well, good morning, church family. Let me welcome you today. Excited to have you here with us. And also those of you joining us online this morning, we are blessed to have you. This morning, I want you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the book of Colossians. We're continuing our series on Above and Beyond, and we're in the book of Colossians, probably about seven or eight messages that we're going to be doing in this book. And uh, I want you to look, if you will, in chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 15 through 23. You know, when you prepare and you preach, and uh, so much of what I try to do is always give application. What I mean by that is, how do you take the text and how do you apply it to your life? But there are some passages of Scripture that are not conducive, or they don't really lead you to a point of where you give application, but they are challenging, and what I mean by that is, they are there to cause you to think. Never before in my lifetime have I sensed or felt that our homes and families, we're living in a very different world. Everybody's under attack. Our kids are under attack. I told the graduating class this morning that they're going off to college to a whole different world than when I certainly went to college, when I graduated in 74. A lot of things have changed. If there was ever a time that you and I today need to know who we are in Christ, it is today. Because your significance and your value is certainly not in anything this world has to offer. We're raising a generation of kids today that, to be honest with you, church is a secondary or third or fourth on the list. Everything else seems to be more important today. The things of God, and I will tell you, the only thing that's going to be challenging to our students is knowing of who they are in Christ and knowing that their faith is real, knowing that Jesus is real, knowing that He is their sustainer, that He is their life giver. And the same thing is true for all of us because all of us are going to face challenges. Well, what Paul does in this particular portion of Scripture, Paul sits down and he writes this little section of passage of Scripture to cause us to stop and to think about who our great creator and king is. If there's ever a time, as I said, I believe that we need to stop and realize who Jesus is, it is today. Because what this passage does, it celebrates our Savior. When you read this passage of Scripture, what you'll discover is that you can't compare him with other historical figures. He's not like any other prophet. He's not like any other religious leader that you may read about. What Paul does, he gives us seven characteristics that really define who Jesus is. No one else has or ever will live up to these characteristics. So when you look at this passage of Scripture, what it does, it really defines who Jesus is. Seven of them. Look at the first one. It's found in verse 15. First of all, He is the image of God. He says in verse 15, in the first part, He is the image of the invisible God. Now, when it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, it's a very interesting Greek word that is used there because it's a word that means the very substance or the embodiment of someone. That word image is twofold. First, it's a representation. Yes, he represents God, but it's greater than that. He is also the manifestation of God. He is God incarnate, if you will. So when Paul says that he's the image of the invisible God, it doesn't mean that he just simply represents God, but rather he is God manifested in flesh upon this earth. John would write in 1 John 1, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So in other words, he's saying, listen, we, we've met him, we've seen him, we've touched him. He is the word of life. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only one, the son of God who came from the father, full of grace and truth. 
You may recall that in the Gospel of John, in John 14, 9, even Jesus said, when you have seen me, you've seen the Father. So he's not just the representation of God. He is the manifestation of God, God with us. Secondly, he's described as the firstborn of all creation. Look at the last part of verse 15. He says, not only is he the image of the invisible God, but he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, when, when, when you read that, what may come to your mind, does that simply mean that he's the first product of creation? Absolutely not. You see, the Greek word here is the Greek word parakatua, and it means the source, that he is the source of creation. It originated with him, that he's sovereign over all of creation. Let me give you an example. For instance, let's take the founder of Chick-fil-A. We all have read and certainly know about Truett Cathy. He's the founder of Chick-fil-A. When, when he founded Chick-fil-A, he was not the first employee of Chick-fil-A, but he had a vision. And he took that vision and it translated into a reality. So when you look at Chick-fil-A today, when you look at that corporation, it goes all the way back to the founder, his vision and what he wanted it to be. What Paul is saying when he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he's talking about that all of creation extended through Jesus Christ. He literally spoke it into existence. Third characteristic, he's the creator of the universe. Pick it up in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Don't miss that. They were created through him. He created it, but they were created for him. That is for his glory. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I want you to look at those two, two or actually four words. It says, first of all, by him. It means that Christ Jesus is literally the instrumentation of creation. He created it by him, for him, which means he's the focus of all of creation. Now you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that from the very beginning when God created everything upon this earth, and he did it certainly through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that God created, the heavens, the earth, the stars, the Rocky Mountains, the Grand Tetons, everything is created to worship him. And foremost, you and I, we were created to worship Him. That's why the Bible tells us that in the last days, even for those who have never received Christ, rejected Christ, the Bible says that there's coming a day and a time that every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that He is Lord. So all of creation understands why they were created. Everything in creation, even mankind, understands why we exist and why we are here, and that is to worship Jesus Christ. So he says that literally Jesus holds all things together. You might say he's the super glue, if you will. That means that Christ is the conserving cause of creation. The world literally is held together by him. And think about this. Jesus Christ is the only one through whom all things came to be that he literally sustains the universe. Why? Why does God sustain it? So that it might hear the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one has ever done that. No one ever will do that. But not only is he the creator of the universe, but fourthly, he's the head of the church. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Let me just say to you this morning, somewhere along the way, the church in America, we have somehow led people to believe or know that the church is really just a reflection of all of our corporate ideas of what we want God to do. We're living in a society today that everybody looks and says, well, what can God do for me? How can God meet my needs? How can God do this for me? 
well, I'm a believer. I'm a, I go to church. I give my tithes. I go and make, So what can God do for me? Understand, listen to me, the ultimate purpose of the church is not for your desires or my desires. The ultimate purpose of the church is that we are the visible embodiment of the presence of Christ in this world. So that means that when you're in school and college and on your job and out there watching your kids, you know, play sports, as I know many of you were this weekend, as, as I was as a grandparent, you, you have to remember that you're there to be the visible image of Christ to a world. Now, I know sometimes you want to get caught up in the moment and you want to yell and I remember one time I was coaching Jared, and I got a technical foul. So, you know, I kind of got in my flesh a little bit. So those things can happen. But everywhere we are and everything that we do, we're the visible representation of Jesus Christ to this world. Don't ever forget that. And I believe with all of my heart that when you and I understand that that's the church, that's why we're here. The Bible says the church is the body in reality. It is the embodiment of Christ So that means we're to represent him in life, in speech, and in actions. He's the head of the church. That means that you and I are to represent his heart and his passion. The church is not here simply to reflect what I think is a good idea or you may think is a good idea. Somewhere we're missing it. The church is not the composite of everybody's best input and ideas, but the church is the body of Christ, and it represents his plan, his will, and his purpose. We're, we're not some little group of people that, that simply become carriers of little cute slogans and statements like, well, Jesus, you know, Jesus loves people, so we ought to love people. I, I think there's much more to this life and much more to who Christ is than little slogans. No, the mission of the church and our mission of the church in our statement is, is to help you connect with God, to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him, to be in His Word, connect with others, and to connect to God's mission of reaching this world, of making disciples of Christ. So the church does not exist for your staff to come up with great ideas and say, hey, let's go do these things. Do you know what the most important job of my life is as your pastor and shepherd? It's not even when I'm in the Word of God to prepare a sermon. The most important time is when I'm on my face and our staff and our leaders are on their face before God, crying out to Him and saying, God, what is your plan? What is your DNA? What is your purpose for First Baptist Church Jinks? Because it's not about me and it's not about you. But so many churches across America today, we've made it about ourselves so what we've done is we've taken this, this church, we've turned it more into an organization rather than a body where we come up with these wonderful ideas, and they've always got to be cutting edge. He's got to be strategic. They've got to be relevant to the purpose and right now. No, Christ is the head. And when we understand who He is and what His mission and mandate is for the body of Christ, that's you and I, then you and I will be on mission to accomplish His purpose and to accomplish His heart. The everlasting creator of this universe, think about this, the sustainer of this universe is our head, we are His body, and one day the Bible says He's going to come and take us home. Fifth characteristic, He's the firstborn from the dead. Look at verse 18. Last part. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, it means that Christ Jesus was the first to rise from the dead in this immortal body. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not just a triumph for him and for us, but it literally was over death. Hebrews 2.14 says that he destroyed the one who has the power of death. So the resurrection declares our victory that you and I are now alive in Christ Jesus, present tense, right now in Him, and also in the life to come, that one day you and I were going to go to heaven, and we get this this wonderful new body. 
Think about this. Jesus will never die again. He'll never have to go to the cross again. He'll never have to shed his blood again. Hebrews 7, 16 says that he lives by the power of this indestructible life. Death and the grave could not hold him. And because of that, he lives within us. Number six, Paul says that he is the fullness of God. Look at verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I want you to look at that word fullness for a moment. It carries the, the implication of completeness. Nothing lacking. God says that he was so pleased because the fullness of God himself dwelt in him. He never stopped being who he always was. He was completely God and also completely man. Now, look at that phrase again. God was pleased because the fullness of God dwelt in him. Does that remind you of a statement? Remember when Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove and the, and the heavens opened up and Jesus said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What that means is that the fullness, the complete deity abides everlastingly of God the Father in his son, Jesus Christ. Family, you cannot read this passage. You, you really can't read the book of Colossians and not understand that when you, when you literally think about or read about or study about Jesus, as he said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the completeness permanently and everlastingly that the Father dwells in him. Number seven, he says he's the reconciliation of God. Look at verses 20 through 23. And through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled his body of flesh by his death. In order to do what? To present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, let me give you three observations that I believe that comes out of this where he talks about reconciling all things to himself. First of all, you've got to remember that he's saying that people are reconciled to God, not God to people. Scripture tells us it's not within our DNA to come seeking after God. Man doesn't do that. It's not our natural instinct. God came to us. But there comes a point within your life and my life where once we recognize our sinfulness and our lostness and we're broken over that, that you and I have to take those steps of faith toward him. But we're living in a world today where we, we think that the goal of the gospel is about us. And so we get to living and thinking, well, God ought to make all these steps and all this, this movement toward us. That's not true. You and I are the ones in need of forgiveness. You and I are the ones in need of transformation. And he says, I reconcile all things unto myself. God does not reconcile. It's not me reconciling to him. It's God reconciling to me. We have to move toward him in faith. Secondly, the price of our reconciliation was the blood of Christ upon the cross. Think about this, the great creator of this universe, the sustainer of this universe, the head of the church, the body of Christ, would go to the cross and die and shed his blood to give his life for us so that you and I might have this relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. He did all of that because he loves you. 
And thirdly, he says that the goal of this reconciliation is twofold. It is, number one, our complete forgiveness and cleansing. The Bible says without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But there's, notice this, it takes another step. The reason why we're saved, the reason why we're cleansed, the reason why Christ comes to live within us is because there is a motivation to demonstrate the reality of this relationship with God through Christ to a lost and dying world. I loved a few moments ago, Brandon said, as he prayed, he was praying that these students would get to have conversations about Christ. Let me ask you a personal question today. As you're living in the world today, as you're doing your job and doing everything that you do and going through life, do people have to guess that you're a believer or do they just see Jesus just oozing out of you? Do they see in your actions and reactions and your speech and your walk and everything about your life? Does people have to look at you and go, and in other words, they're surprised? You say, oh, I'm a believer. They go, really? I would have never guessed that. Or do they look at you and say, there's something different about you. I've watched you go through sickness and death and loss, and I've seen you go through tough times and man, I, 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 see, I see something different about you. And they may not necessarily know what it is, but that's where you get to have that Jesus conversation and go, well, what's different about me is Jesus. You see, this is what Paul is reminding us of. That all of this has happened to us is to be able to demonstrate to a lost world this incredible relationship as I said at the beginning of this message, this message is one to cause you to think. So as I was working on this message, I'll be honest with you, I found myself going, okay, we've come to the end. How do I tie all this together? So I was sitting there at my desk, and I went back to the computer, and I just typed in. I thought, okay, what is he talking about? What he's talking about? Jesus, our Savior. He's our King. When I typed in the word King, all of a sudden, a message popped up. It was a message that was preached by an old black preacher by the name of S.M. Lockridge. He was the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego, California. He actually preached this message, or not the one I preached, but he preached a message on That's My King. I, I, you, you don't even get to hear the message, but what they have done, they've taken the very last part of his sermon. I wished I had written this. I sat down and read it, and I started crying. I brought Diane, and I said, you need to hear this, and I read it to her. She started crying. It is one of the most moving pieces of literature that I've ever read in my life that describes what Paul has just shown us in these seven characteristics. I want you to listen to these words. The Bible says that he is a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That is, he's an ethnic king. He's the king of Israel. He's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. That is my king. Well, I wonder if you know him. Don't try to mislead me. Do you know my king? David said that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. My king is the only one with whom there is no means of measure that can define his limitless love. 
No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline or the shores of his supplies. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He is enduringly strong, entirely sincere, eternally steadfast. He's immorally graceful. He is imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He is God's son. He's the center savior, the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's honest. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the grandest idea of literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of historic theology. He is the necessity of spiritual reign. That is my king. He's the miracle of the ages. He is the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tired. He sympathizes and he saves. He's the almighty God who guides and keeps all of his people. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives the sinner. He discharges the debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the ages. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the weak. That is my king. Do you know him? Well, my king is a king of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He is the highway of holiness. He's the gateway to glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captive of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseers of the overseers. He's the governor of the governors. He's the prince of peace. He is the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That is my king. His office is manfold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is in righteousness. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. That's my king. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He is irresistible. I'm coming to tell you this, that the heavens of heavens can't contain him, let alone some man explain him. You cannot get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hands. You cannot outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out that they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree about him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Hallelujah. That's my king. He has always been and he always will be. I'm talking about the fact that he had no predecessor. He'll never have a successor. There is nobody before him and there's nobody after him. You can't impeach him. He's not going to resign. That's my king. That's my king. Hallelujah. Do you know him? Wow. What a description. But that's our king. Family, that's exactly what will sustain you and get you through the hard and the tough times in life. But the question is, do we know him? And if we know him, do we let the world see him in our life, in our speech, in our actions? Do the world really know when they look at your life, he is Lord and he's your Lord? He's first, he's not second, third, fourth, fifth. There's no other priority higher than him than to live for him and to bring glory to his name. Let's stand. Father, I come to you today and I pray that you will just take this truth as it describes who Jesus is, 
Thank you for Brother Lockridge for his description of Christ and that I got to share that today. Father, I, I pray that you will just stir within us that this truth will cause us to think, to ponder again who you are, to remember who you are, that you are a king, that you're our savior, sustainer, life giver, that everything that we need is wrapped up in Jesus and that every day we yield and surrender our life to you so that our choices bring honor and glory to you. Speak to hearts today. Bring about life change today. For those you're calling to be a part of this church by letter, by statement, by baptism, I pray today that they would come and say, yes, this is a family I want to be a part of. Speak to our hearts, and I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.